uh, open your Bibles, Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to continue this morning in our study through the book of Daniel. Uh, This is part two of a message we started last week here in Daniel chapter 6, and the continuation of our study through the book of Daniel. Next week, we're going to be getting into Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to start the whole prophecy section of Daniel, and that's going to be a great uh, sort of segue into a whole different section of the book. We're looking forward to that, but today we're going to finish up here in chapter 6. Um, as you're still making your way there, I'm gonna, I have a pop quiz for you this morning. didn't know you were going to be quizzed, but I have a, a pop quiz. How many of y'all uh, can answer the question, what currently holds the number one spot on the country music television? Now, I, just, I know I just lost a bunch of you, but, but what holds the number one spot on country music television's top 40 greatest drinking songs? I hope you don't know the answer to that. What, what is it? Oh, friends in low places. Oh, for crying out loud, you're right. By that theologian Garth Garth Brooks. Friends in low places. I I need to pray for you, John. Um, Now, even if you're not a a fan of goat rope and music, and you don't apply, uh, ascribe to the particular theology of that theologian Garth Brooks, um, chances are you know the lyrics to the song, right? I've got friends in low places where the whiskey drowns and the beer chases my blues away, and I'll be okay, right? Gosh, darn it, I need to pray for you guys. Yeah, that's, that's the song, man. And, and here's the thing. It resonates with people. There's a reason it holds the number one spot. Here's why. Because it resonates with just a a key fundamental part of the human psyche. There is a part of our physiological makeup that responds to adversity in one of two ways. It's called fight or flight. And so when you face adversity, you're going to naturally respond in one of two ways. Now, the the idea of fighting means I'm going to respond to adversity by eliminating this adversity. I'm going to fight against it. And that's, that's one response. But another common response is, hey, I'm going to escape this adversity by fleeing from it. And so many people today, and this is the, the, the resonation of this, this song, this is, this is what people tap into in this song, no pun intended, but they, their way of escape is to run to the bar, to run to the bottle, and, and to flee from it. Now, the Bible offers a decidedly different counsel on how we are to respond to adversity. I'll put the scripture on the screen for you. We'll leave it up there for a second. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. In other words, when God prescribe suffering or adversity in your life, we're instructed biblically to turn it into worship, turn it into praise by doing good. Now, when it says by doing good, that phrase doing good, literally what it means there in the original language is it means a right course of action. And, and, and the thing is this, is that when we face adversity, we're supposed to respond to it by, by following a right course of action. And so often, just as this, I got friends in low places, we respond to adversity by taking a wrong course of action. I had a conversation with somebody recently and they were telling me, just telling me their testimony. And and it was all about how they took the wrong course of action uh, in response to adversity. They were having problems in their marriage. And so rather than take a right course of action and and get involved in counseling and really work through, you know, communication issues and how can I love my spouse biblically and how can I die to myself and all the things, you know, that are, that are needful, you know, marriage is, is, is hard work. You know, it's what my, my mom and dad told me when I said, Hey, I'm in love with this woman. I want to marry her. And they said, it's hard work. You got to work at it every single day of your life. And I'm like, come on. I, my, my, mom and, my mom and dad still make out in the kitchen. I mean, there's still like all, and I'm like, yeah, it's really hard work. And then I got married and I realized that's hard work, you know? And, and so, you know, you have to work through it. But a lot of times people take this, they, 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 they take the wrong course of action. And this is what this person was sharing when they got into marital, marital trouble. <clears throat> and so their wrong course of action was to run to the bar. They got drunk, uh, they came home, the fight escalated even more, and before they knew it, they found themselves in jail because they took a wrong course of action as opposed to the right course 
of action. And, um, you know, it's, it's a common response, not necessarily to run to the bar, not necessarily to run to the bottle, although that, that is common as well, unfortunately. But it's a common course of action for people to react to adversity by taking the wrong course uh, of action. And certainly Daniel serves as somebody who responded to adversity by taking the right course of action. As a matter of fact, Daniel is, I would submit, the poster child of somebody who responds to adversity by taking a right course of action through it. And we see this model throughout his life when, you know, he's a man now in Daniel chapter 6, he's probably in his 90s or if not very close to it, and he's been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years now. And so for 70 years, he's had adversity after adversity after adversity. And consistently, you can set your watch by Daniel that he responds well to the adversity. It starts off in King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, realm and his rule when Daniel was still quite young. Nebuchadnezzar trying to uh, indoctrinate Daniel and his companions and changes their names and really wants to change their identity to fit more with the Babylonian culture. And yet Daniel would not be changed. He would not bow. He would not yield. He wouldn't relent. He remained faithful uh, and responded in the right course of, of, of action to the adversity that he faced. When Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel responded by giving him the interpretation. He didn't take the wrong course of action by telling the king what he wanted to hear. He told him what he needed to hear. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar w- defied God by going against that dream, building up a golden image and demanding everybody worship it, uh, Daniel's companions taking the same course of action. Hey, listen, we are not going to respond to this challenge by taking a wrong course of action. We're going to be faithful to God and they're going to go through the fiery furnace and they respond with a right course of action. In a change of the kingdom, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, dies and, and ultimately Belshazzar comes into power, Daniel again consistently taking the right course of action. Despite the fact that Belshazzar was vile and wicked, Daniel remained faithful to do what God had called him and remaining right where God had called him to be. When, when God shows up large and in charge in Belshazzar's life and the handwriting is on the wall, and again perhaps the temptation for him to tell Belshazzar what he wants to hear, Daniel remains faithful, takes the right course of action, tells him what he needs to hear. And again, here now, even in chapter 6 in his old age, Daniel, 90 years old, thereabouts, and and he's proving himself faithful under King Cyrus's reign. He's got Darius in charge for him, the king does, and uh, Darius, uh, you know, is, is, you know, watching Daniel be this faithful man and his faithfulness is getting him uh, promoted, getting Daniel promoted. And again, Daniel taking the right course of action. And even when and we saw last week, he's kind of the Darius is hoodwinked into to having everybody worship him and pray to him. And, uh, and the guys set Daniel up. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But even in the midst of this, Daniel remained faithful, took the right course of action, even in adverse uh, circumstances. And of course, the big idea of Daniel chapter six is, is the implications of living a faithful life. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, there are gonna be implications to that. There's good implications to that and there's negative implications for that. The Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so those are some of the negative implications of that. And so we began to look at that last week. And basically, here's where we left off, and I'll just bring you up to speed on the story, that King Cyrus has now taken over Babylon. He's now the third ruler over Babylon, and he's got this guy, Darius, who's, who's probably led the forces in and over, overthrew Babylon. And so Darius is the guy who's in charge of Babylon, not unlike, you know, MacArthur was in charge of, of Japan when we overthrew it. And MacArthur wasn't, you know, the leader of the free world, but he was the general who was overseeing uh, Japan. And, and in the same way, Darius is overseeing Babylon. And Darius puts 120 satraps over all the provinces of Babylon, puts three guys as governors over them. Daniel, because he's a faithful man, is one of those governors. And so the, the, uh, Darius is now considering, man, he, he is so faithful, this Daniel guy, I'm going to put him as my number two guy. He's going to be in charge of all the governors. So the satraps and the governors, they don't like it, and, and they conspire together to, to get Daniel out of there, but they can't get anything on the guy because he is so faithful. 
Even though he's 90 years old, they, don't, they can't get any dirt on the man because he's a faithful follower of God. And so they say, look, the only way we can get this guy is if we catch him in his own religion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set him up. We'll get the king or we'll get Darius, who's, who's in charge. We'll get him to, to pass an edict that everybody can only pray to him. That'll play right into his, his ego. And, and then once this edict is passed, all we got to do is watch Daniel because we know he'll be faithful to God. He won't submit to that. And then we've got him and they'll kill him. So this is what they do. And, uh, and all of this comes to pass and they catch catch him red-handed. They go to Darius. Hey, he, he was praying to his God. He wasn't praying to you. And Darius laboring to say, how can I set this guy free? Labors all day long. And according to the Persian law, you, once, once the, the, the discretion of the law was discovered, the sentence had to be carried out that day. And so here it is sundown. They come to him and they're like, hey, listen, you can't renege, man. This is the law. And uh, Darius is caught in a position where, where he's, he's got a past sentence. And so Verse 16, the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and they cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke saying to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now that's a strong statement of your faith when an unbeliever, and it's clear it's an unbeliever because he calls him your God, not my God, but he basically sees, look, God's been faithful to you. He's gonna be faithful to you again. And so this is what he declares. Verse 17, then a stone was brought, laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Hey, we're going to seal this thing up. We're going to put our signet ring seal on it so it's not broken. Nobody tampers with it. This sentence is going to be carried out and uh, nobody's going to mess with it. Verse 18, now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting and no musicians were, were brought before him and also his sleep went from him. And so this is very clear. Basically, he's, the king is stressed out. He's worried for Daniel. And so he can't eat, he can't sleep, and, 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 you, and he's not even interested in, in being entertained. And, and, and guys, which one of us can't identify with the king in this point? To where you've had something maybe that stressed you out and you go to your bed and you're like, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I'm not interested in being entertained, just don't bug me. All I want to do right now is worry about this thing that I'm worried about, you know, and this is what's going on with the king. He's, he's gripped with fear and anxiety. And, and this, is, this is funny because it's not in the text, but as you go through this, you get the distinct impression that Daniel probably had one of the best night's sleep of his life on this same night. And, 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 and just an illustration there of how, well, in Christ Jesus, we as believers, we have a peace that surpasses understanding that's available to us in the Lord. That, that as I trust in the Lord, as I cast all of my cares upon him, knowing that he cares for me, as I follow the Bible's instructions that says, hey, listen, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the God of all peace, which surpasses our understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And this promise available to us, Daniel probably has the best night's sleep while he's in the lion's den, but here this unbeliever is in a place where he's gripped with fear, he's gripped with anxiety, he's gripped with remorse, and just, you know, not in the notes today, but maybe something there, if you're somebody who's gripped with anxiety, and you're losing sleep, and, and all of that, man, gut check time, are you trusting in the Lord, or are you trusting in yourself? And, and so this is what this king does. He's gripped with fear and all. Verse 19, then the king arose very early in the morning and he went in haste to the den of lions. Verse 20, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. And that gives us a clue where he's at. He hopes that he's alive, but he suspects that he's dead. He's already mourning for the guy when he goes there. He's got this lamenting voice. And so he cries out with this lamenting voice to Daniel. And the king spoke saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. And isn't that just an awesome title? Wouldn't you love for people to know you that way? And this is how this unbeliever knows he's a servant of the living God. 
And beautiful to have people know you that way. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Now, can you imagine? You're the king, you're lamenting, you're worried, you're fearful, and you hear his voice. Just the, I'll thank God. I mean, it's the kind of thing like as a parent and you're, you're agonizing, where are my kids? They're not answering the phone. And then, and then they pick up their phone and that, 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 I'll thank God they're okay kind of. And this is just the, hey, oh, king, live forever. And his heart just sings for sure. And verse 22, Daniel continues. He says, my God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Hey, listen, God protected me and and I'm innocent before him because I trust in the Lord. It's not that he's not without sin. It's that he trusts in God. And so he's innocent before God, just as we as Christians, as we trust in the Lord and as we place our hope in him and as our prayer to him, just as we sang in worship today, is, is depending on his grace and on his mercy and on his propitiation for our sin, which basically means that Jesus died on the cross for our sin in our place. And and so that's what makes us right with him. That's what makes us blameless before God. And he says, look, look, I've been found innocent before God. And he says, also, O king, I've done no wrong to you. You need to know. These guys said that I I meant you wrong. I didn't do wrong to you. I just want you to know, my heart, king, that that I wasn't against you. I was for you. And verse 23, now the king was exceedingly glad for him. And I love that because he's basically, it's not that the king is exceedingly glad like, Whew, that guilt's off of my shoulders. I was really worried here because remember he was mad at himself because he let these guys trick him into passing this law in the first place. And then he saw in hindsight that they were playing him and that they, this whole thing was a setup from the beginning because they wanted to kill Daniel and he saw through it for what it was. And so he was upset with himself. But now when he's exceedingly glad, it's not like, thank God, I passed a really stupid law and, and I got, got out of that one. And, and now, no, he's exceedingly glad for, for Daniel. It shows his heart for Daniel. He genuinely loves this guy. And so he's glad exceedingly for him and, and commanded. And the Bible is not given to exaggeration, by the way. When it says he was exceedingly glad for him, um, this is an overwhelming, you know, I am absolutely thrilled that you're good. And so he commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found on him. Why? Because he believed in his God. Verse 24, and the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children and their wives and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Now, it's important for me to point out, this is a descriptive text. It's not a prescriptive text. In other words, the Bible isn't saying that this, is, this was the right course of action and this is what God wanted to happen. The Bible is just saying what he did. And you need to understand that, that what Cyrus or what Darius is doing is what the Persians did. They were a wicked, vile, brutal people. I mean, they're the ones that, that were just the perpetuators of, of, of evil and wickedness. They invented crucifixion. Uh, the Romans per- perfected it, but they invented it. And, and just this whole, you know, this was the type of people they were. And so their attitude, their philosophy was, if I'm going to kill you because you're a threat to me, I'm going to kill your whole family. And the reason I'm going to kill your whole family is because I don't want you little kids growing up and coming looking for me. So they're all dead. And that was just the way they operated. It's a horrible, brutal thing. And it's so sad. We see this even today, this mindset of, of brutality and, and killing even women and children. I mean, we just saw it on the news this last week in Syria. And pray for the people of Syria. They just, they gassed their own people. Assad just, just, just poison gassed his own people, over 3,000 people, right, you know, affected by it, 3,500 at the last estimate, were, were poison gassed this week, and over 600 of them have died, women and children. People are brutal. It was the same then, it's the same today. And so this guy, absolutely brutal. Now, what we have here 
in Daniel chapter 6, it is an historical account of, of what happened. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn uh, in the context of what's going on with Daniel, what's going on historically, and indeed we've been looking at those things. But, but what we've also seen over the, the six chapters of Daniel is that it's intensely practical for us, right? I mean, haven't we known? There's so many practical lessons that are directly transferable to us and, and, and how, how we can grow in this and apply this to our lives. And so what we've seen just going through, through Daniel chapter 6 is, well, Daniel's a lot like us. He is a man who is living in a land that's far from home. His home is not in Babylon. His, his home is, is in the promised land. But he hasn't lived in the promised land for years and years. He's been in Babylon for 70 years. And, and now, you know, a man in, in his 90s living in enemy territory, very much we're the same way. As God's children, this earth is not our home. Heaven is our home. We eagerly await our Savior from heaven to save us and to bring him to himself. And, and yet, living here in enemy territory, like Daniel, what we experience is that the world constantly trying to shape us into its mold, just as Daniel and his companions were by Nebuchadnezzar and following, trying the, the, the king trying to press them into his mold and changing their names and changing their identities and seeking to change all of that. And nevertheless, they remain faithful to the Lord. And we too, the same way. Very practical instruction. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we're not to be conformed to this world, but we were to be transformed by the renewing uh, of, our, of our minds. That we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is our reasonable service. Now, when the book of Romans says we're not to be conformed to this world, literally translated, it means don't let the world press you into its mold. And that's what we go through. So there's a lot of practical lessons and seeing through Daniel, seeing what's happening with him, and that we can, we can have those, those practical lessons for ourselves. And... and um, so building on Daniel chapter 6 from last week, there were four points we looked at last week. The first point was that faithfulness will be rewarded. We saw that Daniel was a faithful man and that the faithfulness in his life through the, the reign of, of King Nebuchadnezzar, through the reign of Belshazzar, and now through the, the, the reign of King Cyrus with, with Darius being the overseer of Babylon, in every single uh, enemy rule and reign, even though he's subject to the world forces in which he lives because he's faithful to God, well, God rewarded his faithfulness. He was constantly promoted and everybody constantly recognizing who this faithful man is. And so we saw the transferable lesson for us is that faithfulness will be rewarded. We also saw in Daniel's life the, the, the lesson that faithfulness repels slander. That here were these men, the satraps and the governors, who, who wanted, they didn't want Daniel over them for the righteous life that he represented. They wanted to have him removed. They watched him like a hawk, tried to get some dirt on him, but they couldn't get any dirt on him because faithfulness repels slander. No, nobody can have dirt on you if there ain't no dirt to be gotten, you know? And so here we saw that. Thirdly, we saw that faithfulness will be reviled. In other words, nevertheless, though they couldn't get dirt on Daniel, they didn't stop him from hating him. And Jesus said it would be this way. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so the, the issue is they're gonna hate you. And we looked at that, that listen, your goodness will be reviled by the non-believers in the world, by unbelievers in the world, because the, righteous, the righteousness that you represent will bring conviction on them. And so we saw that. We fourthly, last week, we saw that faithfulness must be repeated. That here Daniel, even though he's in his 90s and has been faithful his whole life, nevertheless, once again, the commandment has, has been, or the law has come down that he's not supposed to pray to anybody but Darius. And, and it wasn't good enough for Daniel at this point to say, you know what? I've been faithful for 90 years and so I, I've earned a, a freebie on this one. And so I, can, I, don't, I don't have to worry about this thing because I've been faithful my whole life. 
And what we saw is that, no, faithfulness by definition means that you're going to faithfully execute your responsibilities in every instance. And so faithfulness, you have to be, you, you as a believer, you have to live a life of obedience and you never reach the point where you say, yeah, that's close enough. Yeah, that's good enough. I'm basically a good guy. God knows. I got change in my pocket. And so, you know, I can start cutting corners. No, faithfulness must be repeated. Which brings us to our fifth point this morning. First point, faithfulness will be tested in the lion's den. I'd have you write that down. Faithfulness will be tested in the lion's den. I want you to look at verse 20. Darius asks Daniel a key question. And it's a question we all better know the answer to. Here's what he asks him. He says, has your God been able to save you from the lions? See, this is a historical question. Hey, you just got tossed in the lion's den, Daniel. What are you going to do next? I'm going to Disneyland. No, what do you, we, you know, has your God been able to d- deliver you from the lions? Okay, he got tossed in the lion's den. How is this lesson transferable? Here's how. Listen, because we all face a lion. Peter talked about, I'll put it on the screen for you, 1 Peter 5, 8. He said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, Peter knew what he was talking about. He's writing to a church in modern-day Turkey that's going through persecution, but when he tells them, look, you better be sober and you better be vigilant, understanding there's a lion that's looking to devour you. He knew firsthand that lion that he was talking about. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, there's, it, it's the night that Jesus is, is going to be betrayed. And what's happening there as we read in, in Luke chapter 22 is, well, there's a lot of different things happening and Judas has already, you know, purposed to go and, and betray Jesus and all that. And, and, the disciples, the text makes a point of telling us, are arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, which this was the debate they had on a number of occasions as you read through the gospels. This is just the, the, the last time they had this debate, hours literally before Jesus would go to the cross and they're arguing about who's the greatest. And so what happens is Jesus, he says to Peter, hey, um, Peter, you need to know that Satan has asked for you. And he wants to sift you like wheat. Now, sifting like wheat, you know, if you're going to harvest wheat, you would take it and you've got the, the, the kernel of wheat and it's, it's got, a, it's got a, a stuff around it, the, the, the skin all around it. And, and if you're going to harvest that, basically what you do is you beat the snot out of the, out of the kernel and all the chaff breaks off and then you throw it around, you toss it all around in the wind and let the wind beat against it and it blows all the chaff away and pretty soon what you have left is, is the harvest of the, of the wheat, the grain of wheat. And what Jesus was telling Peter is, that's what Satan wants to do to you. He's asked for you. He wants to beat the snot out of you and, and, and just blow on you hard. And, and, and he just wants to put you through the ringer. And, and Jesus said, you know, nevertheless, I've, I've prayed for you. And, uh, and there's some encouragement in that. Number one, that Jesus has prayed for us. The Bible says that he, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Right now, this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's praying for you. I mean, that's encouraging, isn't it? He's praying for you right now. That's encouraging. It's also encouraging to know that, that Satan's got to ask, that, that he, when he wants to, to attack you, he has to go through God. This is what is illustrated there. We also learned that in the life of Job, that he's got to go through God and get the green light from God. Now, that's the encouraging part. Here, here's the scary part. And God greenlights it sometimes. He's like, yeah, have at him. You know, I don't, I don't ever want to hear Jesus say to me, hey, Satan's asked for it. He wants to sift you like wheat. But, but, the, but the funny thing is, you're like, no, please, no. I hope, please tell me he's told him no, Lord. Um, lead us not into temptation. But, you know, the issue is he asked for that. And, um, and Peter's response in Luke 22, it's, it's, it's funny, it's comical, because, you know, well, you guys, you probably know the story, but he asks him, and, and basically Peter's like, uh-uh. No, he, he goes, I don't even care. I don't care if I got to go to jail with you. I don't care if I got to die with you. Lord, I, I'm, I'm with you, and I, I'm not going to fail you. And Jesus, you know, probably, he's like, Peter, 
before the rooster crows today, you're going to deny me three times. They're literally hours away from the rooster crowing. And he tells Peter, you're so confident that you're going to go to jail with me, that you're going to go to prison, that you'll go to death if that's required. And I know different. You're going, you're going to run scared. You're going to deny me. And so Peter, when he says to this church in modern day Turkey, you better be sober and you better be vigilant. He knows firsthand what he's talking about. Because he was so intoxicated to think that, hey, you know what? I'm good. And Jesus is like, you don't understand the enemy, man. He's asked for you. He's going to sift you. You're going to go through it. When Peter says, be sober, you know, you hear sobriety and, and you think, okay, well, what is sobriety? It's, 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 it's being free from the influence of intoxicants. That's literally what it is. And, and, you know, you automatically think, okay, well, that means drugs and alcohol. Yeah, and, and it certainly does. It means that. But it means more than that because there's all sorts of stuff in life that can intoxicate you. And, and again, stay with me because we're talking about, you know, Daniel's been thrown in a lion's den. We're talking about how we live in a lion's den and the enemy is stalking you and he's attacking you. And Peter's saying, you better be sober and vigilant because otherwise he's gonna get at you, man. And so there's these things in life that intoxicate us. We, lust intoxicates us. Idols, hobbies, money, ambition, pride. I mean, fill in the blank, right? There's all sorts of things that intoxicate us. Jesus was given a parable about the different seeds that are sown. And he was just basically talking about how the word of God, the seeds represent the word of God and the different soils that the word of God gets planted into and the response and that the soils were the soils of your heart. And so he said that there's, there's seed that's sown into thorny ground. And, and he was explaining what that meant in, in Mark chapter 4, verses 18, 19. He said, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, we come under the influence. We're talking about being sober and vigilant. We come under the influence of, of the cares of this world, of the deceitfulness of riches, of the desires for other things. And, and what happens is it alters us and our lives become unfruitful. And, 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 and so we need to be sober. And Peter says also we need to be vigilant. Um, that, that word vigilant that, that, that Peter uses in, in 1 Peter 5 um, it means literally to rise up, to be attentive, and to be watchful. And the reason for that, that's because our enemy is stalking us. I, I have a friend, he's a corona firefighter, and he, he told me a story about how he was out mountain biking, and, and all of a sudden, you know, he, there was this mountain lion that, that he saw, and it screeched a hole. Now, he always went mountain biking with a, his 9-millimeter Glock in his, in his bag because he was out, you know, and he was afraid of encounters like this. So he said, I, you know, I, I had my Glock in my hand. I wasn't going to shoot it, but I just want to make sure it wasn't going to attack me, and I was going to take him down. And so he sees he's watching him, and he goes, but then there was something spooky about the way that this guy was acting. I just felt like, there's something that wasn't right. And he says, and sure enough, I turned around and there was another mountain lion that was sneaking up behind me. Now, this guy's a fireman. It could have been a tail as long as, you know, he could have been Pinocchio and just tell me a story. But, but, but that's the story that he told. And it, and it's, it, it serves a great illustration here for, for, the, for the, the lesson because the, the enemy st is stalking you. That's the point. And that ain't no tale. That ain't no lie. He's stalking you. And the thing is, he studies you. He knows you. And, and, and listen, there, there's this way that, well, a couple of scriptures just to kind of develop this thought. James chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 16 says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That word enticed means literally to catch by a bait. Uh, keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. He said, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived, man. 
You know, you better be very sober and vigilant is, is the idea. Now, another scripture, Romans 16, 17 says this. Now I urge you, brethren, to note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Now that word offenses in Romans 16, 17, it's the Greek word scandalon. And here's what the scandalon was. The scandalon is a trigger on a trap. You think of like a mouse trap and you know the thing that you put the peanut butter on? That's a scandalon, all right? And so you put these together. The enemy wants to catch you by a bait. And, and what happens is oftentimes what he'll do because he's after you, because he's that lion that wants to devour you, a lot of times what he'll do is he'll use people in your life to, to serve as that trigger for the trap, as the scandalon. And so the idea here is, you know, what, you'll, you'll get somebody, maybe you're hanging out with somebody and, and they, they just, they cause, they're a trigger for you. Maybe it's, you know, they, 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 they're, you get engaged in conversation where you start gossiping or backbiting or complaining and the enemy's right at work there. And what happens so often, the idea is being sober and vigilant. What ha- think of, I mean, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have, you know, that family member that at Christmas, they turn into drunken slob, I, I don't know you kind of person, right? I mean, some of you, that's what you have to endure uh, in, 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 you know, family situations or whatever. We've all been around in some setting or another, somebody who's, who's drunk, who's not sober. And what happens is when they're not drunk, they don't see clearly, they don't act clearly. They, they just, they, they behave in ways that are, that are just foolish and dumb and, and, you know, pick an adjective. And so um, with the idea of people being scandalons in our life, if you're somebody who has these, these friends that are actually triggers in your life that, that are, that, you know, where the enemy is operating, then what happens is, oh, we're just, having, we're just having coffee. Oh, hey, we're just hanging out. Oh, we're just talking. Oh, I just enjoy their company. But then the conversation goes to, complaining, murmuring, backbiting. And what happens is, is that Satan's just got his foot in and what's he doing? Well, he's just triggering the trap. And, and ultimately, listen, what happens is division. You're divided from God. You're divided from his people. And that's what the lion wants all along. Right? I mean, watch the Discovery Channel. What's the, what does the lion want? He could care less about this whole group of, of, of animals. He just wants the one that's divided. That's what he's looking for. I'll take that. That is lunch right there, you know, and, and there he goes. And for, for the lion, I mean, that's just, that's just Monday. That's just what he does. And, and so the, the, the issue here is for us to recognize that we have these relationships. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the people that, that Satan's working on their triggers in my life for gossip, slander, backbiting, murmuring, complaining. Sometimes people are that trigger in my life uh, for sexual promiscuity or for drunkenness or for uh, revelry or, you know, some, some sort of uh, behavior that's going to be abhorrent to God, abhorrent to God rather, and just not going to be uh, God honoring. Sometimes when I do a wedding, and I'm very careful to do this in my wedding ceremonies, where I'll address the wedding party and I'll address the guests. I'll say, hey, listen, I, I want to address the wedding party and the guests. And I tell, tell them about, you know, Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 18, I say to you, the two of you on earth agree concerning anything that they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. And it's not just for tradition's sake that you're here today being part of this wedding ceremony. It's not just because, you know, you're a good family friend and you've been involved in, in their lives. Certainly that's a part of it. But, but really, the, the ultimate reason why you're here and why you're standing, especially you in the wedding party, is standing up for the bride and groom, is what you're doing is your responsibility is to add to this union. You're to bless this union. You're to encourage this union. You're to support this union. You're never to, to, to bring division or, or, or to, to seek to, to interfere or to separate. Because the, the Lord has said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I say that because one of the ways that Satan can use relationships as a trigger to bring, to bring division and, and, and to, to, to bring destruction in our lives is, is that he can use our, our friends or our, even our relatives to, to, to bring division between husband and wife. 
Where my wife, she'll tell women, she'll say, when she counsels them, you hold your husband's reputation in the palm of your hand. And you have to be really careful not to, not to damage your husband's reputation. And, and what happens is a lot of times when, when, and that goes both ways. Guys, you, you hold your wife's reputation in your hand. And you need not to damage her reputation. And what happens that I've seen it over and over again where a spouse will give either family or friends sort of the green light for them to, to malign your marriage or to, to criticize your marriage or to be critical of your spouse. And it brings division. And, and so what we need to do is we need to be very careful to say, I, I can't allow these different scandalons to trigger this trap that the enemy is setting. Because... What he's, what he's looking to do is to divide. He's looking to, to bring separation. He's looking to bring division. And it's all because he's the lion who's looking to destroy me. He's looking to pounce. Has your God been able to save you from the lions? It's a question for you to walk with. Has your God been able to save you from the lions in your life? And, and I would just have you kind of, you know, think through that. See, because the point is that the world's filled with things that can intoxicate us and blur us to God. And the enemy, just he wants that because it just makes it all the easier for him to get at us. Paul was writing to the Galatians, and the Galatians is a church there in, 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 in Galatia that, Galatia that he had, uh, he'd founded. And he basically had you know, instructed them in the gospel, and the gospel, the short version of the gospel is you're a sinner, God knows it, sent his son to die for you. He died on the cross for your sins in your place. You believe in him by faith. You receive the free gift of salvation and you allow him to enter your life and to save you and to convert you. And now you live a life of trying to follow obediently after him, not for salvation, but because you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the big idea of the gospel. And this is the way he taught them. And what happened was they allowed certain men to come into their midst. And these men basically lied to him, sold him a whole bill of goods and basically said, yeah, Jesus Christ, the gospel, yeah, that's all fine. But you also need to add your good works to it. And so it's not just the free gift of salvation purchased on the cross for, for, that Jesus did for you, but it's also you need to be circumcised. And, and so Jesus plus anything equals nothing because it ultimately what you do is you say that my relationship is Jesus and my good works. And in, in your good works is nothing. It's all Jesus. That's it. And so what happened was the scandal on in the Galatians life was that they allowed these people to come in and lead them astray. And here's what Paul said to them. In Galatians 5, 7 and 9, he said, you were running the race so well. Who's held you back from following the truth? Another translation says, who cut in on you? Who, who, who bumped you off course? Basically is the point. He says, it certainly isn't God, for he's the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. What happens is that when we have those people used of the enemy as triggers in our life, and when we start to, to follow false teaching, the, the analogy of yeast is super telling because basically the way yeast works, when you drop it in a, in a batch of dough, it rots the dough. That's what it does. So when you cut into a loaf of bread, and it's got all those neat nooks and crannies that hold butter so well. Those nooks and crannies are there because of gas bubbles that are in the dough from rotting dough. Yummy, right? But that's the picture of sin. And it is yummy, which is a great metaphor for sin as well. Because it's pleasurable for a season, but the season's always too short. And then you got to pay for it. And so anyway, here's the point. That there's the, Satan, he's this crafty predator. He knows what he's doing. And the, and, the, and the get for us is to go, all right, so you're going to go through the lion's den. You're going to be in the lion's den. And you got to understand, okay, what am I going to do when the enemy attacks? Am I going to be sober? Am I going to be vigilant? Is your God able to deliver you from the lion's den that you're facing? Now, Verse 21, Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. And now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel, listen right here, up out of the den 
So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he believed in his God. I want you to take note of the fact that Daniel was in the lion's den all night long. And here's the point of application. God saves through the trial, this is our next point, but not always from the trial. That's important to take note of. He saves through the trial, but not always from the trial. You see, so often we pray that God would deliver us from the trial. And that's okay. I mean, I I encourage it. I mean, we all pray it. We all want it. But God's not always going to answer that prayer by keeping you from going into the lion's den. Sometimes he's going to allow you to go through the lion's den. Frequently, he's going to allow you to go through the lion's den. I'll explain it this way. Um, years ago, when, well, when I was uh, a paramedic with the Riverside County Fire Department, but before I was with the Riverside County Fire Department, I, I was a paramedic in Los Angeles. That's where I got my training, and I was actually in L.A. for about five years. And, uh, and so I, 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 one night we ran a call. We were in South Central Los Angeles, and, and a couple of rival gangs got together. We called it the Knife and Gun Club, and they had the annual meeting of the Knife and Gun Club. And, and so one guy, you know, didn't do so well. Actually, a couple of guys. Uh, they got stabbed, uh, and, uh, and so we, we had them both in our unit. We brought them to the local trauma center. One guy, he, he had a lot of stab wounds, but they were fairly superficial, and so they were going to... Tr- treat him in, in the ER and suture him up and all. And it's funny, just kind of an off story, but the little Filipino nurses are scrubbing the, this guy's bleeding wounds and he's crying like a little baby as they're cleaning him up. And the gal's going, macho, macho, man, you know, just mocking this guy. Um, but his buddy, man, he wasn't doing well and they rushed him up to emergency surgery. And, and here's, here's the, the interesting thing when you think about it. He's there because someone used a knife on him. And how, what's the guy who's fixing him? How's he fixing him? He's using a knife on him. What's the difference? Intent. That's the difference. See, the, the one guy, his intention with the knife was to end his life. The other guy, his intention with the knife, the scalpel that he was using, was to sustain his life. And, and so with God, it's the same thing that, you know, he saves often through the trial Listen, because whereas Satan is a lion and he's looking to destroy, whereas Daniel, these governors and these satraps, their intention is to destroy Daniel by throwing him into the lion's den, God is using those lions through that trial to accomplish a greater purpose through Daniel's life. And he had to do it through the trial. And so I ask you the question, where you're at today, is God allowing you now today to be going through the trial? And, 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 and here's, here's the thing. A lot of times when you're in that place, the question you ask is, God, you know, why am I in this trial? That's not, that's not necessarily the question to ask. There's certainly some wisdom in that because a lot of times we're in the trial because we made some sinful decisions and so there's a, you're here because of consequences. There ain't no teacher like the burnt finger, dummy, wise up, you know, and so that's appropriate. But, but we dwell on that a lot of times and the better question is to ask, Lord, what purpose are you trying to serve through this trial? And, and I really think that's a word for some of you this morning. Some of you, you're in, the, you're in the barrel right now. You're in the lion's den. You're going through it. And maybe you've been stuck on the why. God, you know, don't, do you, you hate me, right? This is why I'm here. Uh, I, it, what, I, what have I done wrong? And you're searching it. Like, what, what have I done wrong? And maybe you haven't done anything wrong. And maybe God just has a greater purpose that he wants to accomplish. Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And so the question to, to prayerfully ask and, and just seek the Lord on is, well, what, what purpose is it that you've allowed this for? See, because Daniel knew, he knew prophecy. He was a reader of scripture. He knew uh, the, the, the prophecies that, that, that Jeremiah had given. He knew that they were going to be in captivity for, for a period of time. They, he knew that 70 years was up. He knew that his people, it was now time for them to come to themselves, to repent and to make supplication uh, to their God in the land of their ca- captivity, just as Solomon had prayed at the dedication of the temple. Daniel knew all of this stuff. 
And so what happened was going through the lion's den, this was what was going to open the door for God to fulfill prophecy. And Daniel knows at this moment it all starts with him. And everything hinges on him being a man who will take a stand for God and be faithful. Again, what trial are you going through today? What what, What lion's den are you going through? And maybe you've been doubting God through it. Man, God has a work that he wants to do through it. And see, God shows himself faithful to Daniel through the trial, and here's why. Verse 24, or rather, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? And so, verse 28, this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. My last point today is that faithful obedience in your life can be massively far-reaching. Faithful obedience in your life can be massively far-reaching. For Daniel, his obedience, remaining faithful to God, opened the door for Darius to make this proclamation, which, by the way, you, you can't enforce morality and righteousness. You can't force people by edict or proclamation to make them follow God. But, but what he's done now is he's set the, 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 the political scene and he's set the trajectory in the course of the nation to where now the, the Jews can return to their homeland, just as God prophesied. And it all came through Daniel's faithful obedience to God. And so his obedience had massive implications for an entire nation. And I'll close with this illustration and we're done. This week, here at Reliance, we had two new men teach two of our growth groups. And that's not, you know, such big news. I mean, we have new people that are being trained up and equipped and teaching new studies all the time. But here's the significance about these two men who taught these two growth groups this week. Both of them taught at the very growth groups that were praying for their salvation when they weren't following the Lord. And what happened was these growth groups prayed for these men faithfully. And their obedience had massive implications in the life of these men such that not only did they get saved, but they would grow such in the Lord that now they've become teachers of God's word and they've come full circle and now they're in the very study that was praying for their salvation. Now they're teaching that study too this week. I mean, you pray, yeah, I'll wait for a clap for that. That makes me want to cry. And so here's the application and the implication just to take a walk with this week. If you'll be obedient to God, if you will be faithful to God, the massive implications of your obedience will blow your mind. You have no idea what it is that God wants to do. But if you'll be obedient, not only will you see God change your life, you'll see how he can use you to change your world. And that's my prayer for this church. I want us to be filled with people that are obeying God And I want to see God change the world because we have a body of believers who've decided, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be faithful to him.